Welcome to Roundhouse Crosstalk. In this week's episode, we interview Sarah Fetterman about her new book, Last Trained Auschwitz, about the role of the French National Railway in the Holocaust during World War II, as well as the legal battles since that have tried to hold the SNCF accountable for its role. I would like to give a quick disclaimer that this podcast deals with heavy concepts such as genocide, concentration camps, and other human rights violations, and may not be suitable for all individuals and ages. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you enjoy. All right, hello, everybody, and welcome to Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. Today, I'm sitting here with Sarah Fetterman to talk about her uh, book that came out in 2021. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, called The Last Train uh, to Auschwitz. Um, we're here today to talk about the role of the SNCF uh, in the Holocaust process in the World War II. Um, as well as to talk about sort of uh, compensation rights um, surrounding that and the, the legal yeah. batter, battle um, surrounding this. Um, so to get started, just jumping into the historical context here today. So the main focus is on your, of your book is on the corporate uh, slash nation state accountability um, to Holocaust survivors in the form of direct compensation. Um, and it covers extensively the legal battles in the United States and France over the SNCF's role in the World War II. Um, and their potential financial liability towards the survivors. Uh, but before we get into all that, if we can lay some historical groundwork and talk about um, really the role of the railroad and the Holocaust in general, um, something that surprised me while reading your book is that the role of the railroad wasn't really talked about all that much until 1976. Um, so maybe we can start there. Where, what was the, the role of the railroad and how did it become sort of at the forefront of, of, the, public, yeah. of the public's memory? Yeah, it's, um, first of all, we have to put ourselves in the mindset of a, a rail company with 500,000 employees. Today, the French National Railways has about 250,000. I think I think Amtrak has shy, maybe you know this, shy of 20,000. So trying to manage, thinking about this railway, 500,000 people, right, operated by coal, and France gets occupied by the Germans fairly early in World War II, just to remind people. And in that armistice that was signed, uh, the railways was requisitioned, which means that the Germans, about 6,000 German engineers, would oversee the 500,000 person SNCF. Okay. So during the war, the company did many things. The Germans didn't want to manage the whole railway. I mean, they had they couldn't you know run everything in France. So the SNCF did its thing. I mean, it helped people get them food. It helped people flee Paris when the Germans arrived, right? So it played this kind of role. So it was it was a victim of the war. That's one thing I talk about it in three ways: victim, hero, and perpetrator. Because I think when you have a company this big, you really want to un- have an understanding of. It playing many roles. It's a victim of the war because it was occupied by the Germans. It didn't ask for this. It didn't want to be overseen by the Germans. Uh, and the Germans often demanded things like moving armaments or moving supplies and didn't pay the full amount. So the SNCF did not profit from the war in the way that, say, Hugo Boss did that made Nazi uniforms. So it wasn't a profitable time. Their railway workers were sent all over Europe sometimes. A number of their railways were destroyed. So, like, it wasn't a great time for them as a business. So that was the kind of the victim story that you can say. Um, The hero story is that some of the railway workers, and I'm talking about, like, 
maybe 3,000 of the 500,000 um, coordinated with the resistance and helped in very material ways, either people escape or to help the trains, the Germans not get to the Normandy beaches during World War II. But again, this is like such a small portion of your, the executives who ran the company, there's really no evidence that they were sort of, um, you know, standing up to the Germans in any way. Okay. And then we have the perpetration side and that's kind of what I got into, which is they played a role in a material role in deporting about 70,000, almost 80,000 Jewish deportees, largely born abroad or, or um, not from France to the German border where another train driver took them to Auschwitz and where they were murdered. So you have a whole lot going on in this company during during the war. Yeah. Well, and something your book talks about is like, like you were purposeful in not just presenting them in that binary of good and bad um, or perpetrator or victim. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's complicated. It's, for this company, it's, it's sort of both. Um, so how do we benefit from viewing the SNCF in, in that way? I think it's important, especially even as we look at corporate accountability for now, in these days, is that companies play many roles. You know, people play many roles, <laughs> you know, in some ways complicit, in some ways heroes, in some ways victims. And I think it really helps us move forward together as we make moral decisions in the present and also atone for kind of transgressions in the past that we don't have to be all evil to have, you know, to to help make amends for something that didn't go right. And I think it's important when you're advocating for your rights to not necessarily treat the agency that did it as pure evil, right? They don't need to be Lex Luthor in order for you to have your, you have your rights. Um, okay. And then the last thing was, um, so what was the process of getting sort of the historical memory to to focus on the railroads today. As, yeah, this is like so interesting because we are all in the middle of these memory conversations of how things get remembered the way they do. And then what happens if you challenge those stories and how upset people get. So after the war, France needed a site of national pride. They had been occupied. They had a lot of losses. It was really demoralizing. And the railway became a site of historical pride, in part because some of those railway workers, the heroes that we're talking about, they had a role in, as I said, stopping the German trains from getting to the Normandy beaches so the allies could secure a landing. They're like, man, like that's the resistance. This is so exciting. So they made a, the SNCF and the French government made a movie about that called the Bataille de Rye, which you can watch on YouTube about this heroic moment. And it was a heroic moment. I don't want to take anything away from that. But that became the anchor and how it got remembered in public memory. Then the French state actually gave the SNCF a medal for Légion d'honneur, which is the highest medal you can get in France for its acts of resistance. And then even a survivor organization <laughs> acknowledged their role in the resistance. Now, again, I told you that was like a few people in this huge company. Um, but remember all those people that were deported and descendants of the deported were like, I don't know what they were thinking. Like, um, does anybody remember when we were deported? Um, but that was really pretty much stuffed down until the 90s, that, that experience. Uh, the SNCF, to what extent is it publicly owned, nationalized? Like, was this a, a private company? What was going on there? Yeah, great. It's an important, I know, it's a really important distinction. So right before the Germans arrived, the SNCF, it became a national, it, it was born. It was all independent rail lines, but they were losing money. 
And this was not an uncommon thing. I mean, even the Rothschilds owned a line of the railway and they just, there were caps on prices. So the railways weren't allowed to charge as much as it was costing. And so it just made sense to make a national railway. So a number of the rail lines, you know, became a conglomerate. And then you have the SNCF and then the Germans arrive and how nice for them because they are able to take control of one, uh, of one railway. So um, that was, so it was national, but they were still, it was, like 51% national, but the private owners still owned uh, their, you know, shares in the company. And so they maintained some ownership until like the 1980s when it became an Epic, which is like, a, it's like a, it's kind of a hybrid public private company in France. It's a, it's a particular designation, EPIC. So after the war, how were the companies treated by the allies during occupation? Um, were they held as accountable as um, say the, the uh, officials and things like that. Was there a difference between how a corporation would be treated mm-hmm. during occupation versus like individuals? Yeah, so great. So remember, uh, people know that after after the Nuremberg trials, there were these post-Nuremberg trials where they held corporate executives accountable. There were about 12. Um, and they were, none of them were French. They were mostly German. None spent more than eight years in prison. And then they went on to run post-war Europe. France ran its own period of purges, éparation, it's called. So they went through and cleared their collaborators and like, what, we got it. Like, we got this. No need to come in and enter and like, tell us what to do. Um, So some of the, some of the managers of the SNCF were held accountable, not for the deportations, but just like for collaboration and like, uh, but not the whole company. So that was sort of it. French police, similar, like, but almost nothing happened with them. Uh, And then that was sort of it. That was it. There wasn't a large kind of talking about it. And just again, to reemphasize, right after the war, Holocaust survivors were not seen as separate victims and just victims in general. It was just a big mass of people who suffered in the war. Interesting. How did when did that shift happen? Really, the 80s, the 80s, the, the, the biggest there are a number of factors that helped and not a trivial one. It was the fall of the Soviet Union. Because when the Soviet Union fell, the West didn't need Germany or Switzerland to protect it from the USSR. So the unfinished business of the Holocaust came out. There had been a number of people writing, starting to write about the Holocaust, writing about their memories in the 80s. There was Shoah that came out, the Claude Landsman nine-hour documentary. Um, there was a show in the U.S. called the uh, the U.S. Holocaust. I think NBC aired it. So there was like this growing awareness in the 80s and then the end of the uh, Cold War. And then it sort of archives opened and things. And there were a number of factors that opened that. Yeah, that's so interesting because now it's just so ubiquitous. Like that yeah. in all of our curriculum for, you know, seventh grade, eighth grade, like it, it comes up so often to think of that as like, just starting in the 80s is kind yeah. of yeah and what it was like to live with those memories and not be right. able to talk about them okay so so another thing that that came up in your book is the sncf so your book covers two different legal battles one in the united states and one in france yeah. uh, most of it focuses on the one in the united states um which is sort of interesting this is a french kind of french owned kind of you know, privately owned, but it's a French railroad. How how exactly does it end up in an American court? Yeah, this is so interesting for these transnational movements, and we see these happen. So the litigate the those in France who sued the company who are based in France, there's no class action in France, so you have to sue one at a time, and there's no contingency fees, which means you have to pay all your own legal fees. So the survivors are like suing them one at a time, 
And then the French courts close. They say, listen, you know, I'm sorry, there is no end to the amount of pain that this war has caused, but we cannot keep hearing each of these individual cases. Case closed. They end up letting the SNCF off the hook. In part, back to your earlier question, because in France, they're under private law. Yeah, instead of administrative law, instead of like public, so that they were they couldn't be held accountable because there was no in private law, you needed a criminal, and they wasn't a criminal because the criminals were dead. And so in part of for a lot of legal reasons, they got kind of uh they were off the hook. Then, as happened, as many as happened, there have been a lot of class action suits out of the United States for survivors who weren't compensated. So the lawyers launched a class action lawsuit, including a number of those French litigants that never got, got money. Uh, but you can't sue France. Now, see, in, in the U.S., the SNCF is actually considered a public company like France. And in France, it's considered a private entity that needs a criminal. So anyway, they got out of it. And the lawyers knew this. I mean, they were savvy. You cannot sue another country. That's There's something called foreign sovereign immunities. But they didn't need it to win. They just needed it to get in the news. And it did. So most Holocaust, I don't even, I was told that none, I, I'm not, I've not checked every, but they're not settled in court Holocaust cases. They're always settled. Someone sues, the lawsuits get thrown out, and then they use the lawsuit to press for a settlement. Okay. So then that's, so that's legally what happened. But then if you want, we can talk a little bit about how it played out in the individual states, because it didn't end there. Yeah, yeah no, that would be awesome if we can talk a little bit about yeah. So then very savvy legal team with they claimed they had 600 litigants, although others say they did not have nearly that many. And I never saw the final list. So um, some range, some number of litigants who were suing, they realized, unlike other rail companies like the Hungarian rail or the Polish rail, the French railway bids for contracts in this country under Keolis. So there's something called SNCF America. And then Keolis is their brand here. And they bid for regional commuter and high-speed rail contracts. So they bid for the Virginia Rail contract uh, and beat Amtrak and won that one. And then there were some rumblings about like, wait a minute, don't they have this Holocaust history? I'm not sure we want them here. Now, I don't know if Amtrak had any like encouraged these <laughs> this pushback in any way, but they really stand to benefit when the SNCF struggles in the US. Then Florida, so it's Florida, Virginia, California, uh, and Maryland all drafted legislation having to do with making the SNCF atone in some way before bidding for contracts in their state. Florida, they were bidding for high-speed rail. Maryland, it was the Mark commuter rail. In California, it was the high, proposed high-speed rail contract, which we're still waiting on. And should that ever come, the SNCF, Keolis, will bid for it. But since we're a California podcast, let's talk about in California, legislation was drafted saying that they needed to be transparent about their role in the Holocaust before they could bid. And there was some legislation proposed that Schwarzenegger, then governor, sh shot down, vetoed it and said, listen, like we're not in the like the reparations business. But it was Bob Blumenfeld, I think, who proposed it and then had all the kind of Holocaust organizations on board. But still, the SNCF, they digitized their archives, which they had to do for Maryland because it did pass in Maryland. And they sent it to California like as a sign of goodwill, here's all the documents. Um, yeah. So it really played out there. Survivors and organizations in the states lobbied their legislators to propose legislation to block them until they atoned. Yeah. And that, that's awesome because it sounds like a lot of what they're asking for is just, I mean, it's it's it's, it's uh, transparency. It's that archive and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and just to clarify, so, so what exactly... 
uh, be, be maybe beyond that, like what exactly is the goal of these? Like, I, I know we talked about. Yeah, it's, good. It's, it's a good point. So you mentioned in the beginning that, you know, I studied reparations, but it's actually so much more than about money. So one of it, as I said, you know, people, there was so such a lack of transparency in how the company told its story uh, that people want to be transparent. Like, listen, like, just say that you took my family or you took me and like, this is part of your story. So that, that when, when you're, what happened to you isn't even discussed. It's an, it's a, it's another pain, right? It's another, another harm. So that's one. They wanted an apology, uh, many of them. And then a number wanted compensation uh, as well. So it was compensation. And these things are what everybody asked for. This is something called transitional justice. This is sort of what people asked for. But the first man who sued the company sued them for a symbolic euro. He just wanted them to say they did it. And once they put a plaque at the train station where his father was taken, he dropped the suit. It was just symbolic. He's like, I just want you to admit <laughs> that this happened. And that, I mean, that's such a human thing, right? Like that's like, all, I just need an apology, you know, for the thing that happened for you to say yeah. it happened. And then like, like you've mentioned the documents and the archive being available for you yeah. know, people to dive in deeper. Um, and I'm sure that's yeah. helped in researching. Yeah. Where they were, the archives were, what he was able to show with the archives was that the SNCF was paid for transporting deportees within France like moving them from an internment camp to the train station. There is no invoice showing that they were paid from France to Germany when they were in the cattle cars all squished in. But, you know, a lot was burned, you know, so it's just, it's hard to to know. I mean, I don't know. Is it better to do it for free? Is it better to charge? Yeah. Yeah. Legally, I, it's probably easier to make a case if, if they were compensated, but like right. from, from the other side Morally, of it, it almost doesn't, matter right you still did the thing it's, do you want to help the germans by doing it for free yeah right yeah yeah so yeah, it's complicated um okay so okay so yeah so i thought this was a really interesting point of the book because you argue that sort of corporate liability for extreme human rights violations um is becoming more and more important as an avenue for atonement um so so what is it about corporations and maybe even like nation states that make it in some ways easier to prosecute legally or um, just sort of try to force some type of atonement out of um, as you mm. get further away from World War II. Yeah, legally, it's not possible. I mean, legally, it ends up sort of not possible still. They still, corporations still mostly have impunity. Uh, well, in the international criminal court, so our only international sort of legal enterprises, they only do natural persons. So like things with a pulse, train company doesn't count, it's a company. And we do have a court of justice, which does between countries, but there's nothing between. So there's a lot of trying to use U.S. courts to hold companies accountable around the world, um, although the Supreme Court struck that down a while ago. Not this particular court, an another court um, struck it down. So corporations um, do often settle uh, for brand for reputational purposes, their visible legacies, uh, especially brands that want to that our heritage brands, they want uh, to build on this reputation of being a quality company that you can trust. Uh, we're about, I don't know, thousands of German companies paid into a fund in Germany eventually uh, to compensate slave labor there. So we, we might see something like that in the US around slavery. I mean, 
CSX Railway, right, was sued uh, for having connections to slavery in the United States. That case was thrown out because the litigants could not prove that they were personally harmed. So they have a different challenge when you're focusing on slavery, but more evidence is coming to show that they actually have been actually have been harmed. Um, but corporations are visible. They have money. Uh, getting that money from them when they're willing to do is easier sometimes than from the government. <laughs> so, yeah, they're visible and accessible. And for the railway company, the railway just is the symbol of the Holocaust. So they're going to find themselves uh, held to account. One of the things you brought up in the book is just like the further away we get from World War II, also there's less like individuals that you can bring to atonement, which is at some point we're going to run out of um, both direct survivors yeah. and of direct perpetrators. Yeah. So. I couldn't find it. I mean, when I interviewed a hundred or ni- over 90 Holocaust survivors for the book and, and lots of other people affected by it, I can't find one person who worked there that would talk to me, right? I mean, wow. like, many would be dead, right? Because the... Right. All survivors I was interviewing were kids at the time. So most were dead. And of those alive, no one's too eager to talk about, you know, there's a lot of pride in working at the company. And yeah. I think I just, since you are, you know, a railroad group here, you know how how the excitement of being part of a railway company and how people feel about that. And, you know, it was difficult for the company because they had a number of railway workers who didn't want to talk about this. They don't want to tarnish their history. They don't want to deal with this past. Like, don't make me feel shameful about this company that I work for. So this is what we have in our country as well as in, in companies. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting too. Like, cause you said there's 500,000 originally and like, like, yes, it's been a long time. And a lot of those folks are probably, you know, middle oh, yeah. age or older. So a lot of them are, are not, but you would think, yeah, there would be somebody, but it, it, if there's, you know, that pride and that just not wanting to really, yeah, because it, I mean, it's, it's, it's got to be a hard unless you're part of that 3000 that were directly that resistance right? efforts. Like, how do you how do you say, like, yes, I was a cog in this giant machine that led to this. Right. Awful. Nobody thing. wants to be that person. Yeah. And, no one, and our culture is very punishing. You know, we, yeah. we don't have a very restorative attitude so that when people come forward and try to process this, sometimes they just get more egg thrown at them. Um, so something so on that note that your book uh, does is. Yeah. Um, to make sure that you continue to have survivor stories sort of central to the story and scattered throughout. Um, and, and that is at the end of each chapter, you have voices from the last train as a, as a sort of reoccurring thing there. Um, I'm interested, one, how did you, you know, get in contact with so many survivors? And then two, how did you decide which stories to include and yeah. where and things like that? I'm so glad you asked, you asked that question. Actually, what, Help me was first what I just asked if I'd find a survivor who'd find help me find another survivor and mm-hmm. so on. But what really helped is the Holocaust Museum in DC has this service where you can send a message out through their system and they send it to all their so they said anybody who was in France during the war who fled persecution, they sent them my email. And my email and phone number, my voicemail was filling up all the time. My email flooded, like I was over overwhelmed actually. So that's how it came to be 90. I didn't mean to, you know, interview 90. I didn't need 90 for my dissertation, but who are you going to not call a Holocaust survivor back? So amazing stories. Um, And then to your point, how do you choose? In my dissertation, I put them all in pretty much, which is why it was 700 pages. (laughs) But I was on a writing residency, uh, the Logan nonfiction writing residency, and I had other writers there, thank goodness. And I was like, how do I pick? How do I pick? Who do I write about for a book? And they're just like, just 
see which ones stick with you. You can only do four colleagues, only do four. So I started just writing about the people whose stories kind of haunted me the most for whatever reason, or they just, I don't know, they stuck with me. And in writing them up, by chance, they all were on the last train to Paris, from from Paris to Auschwitz, that left a month um, after D-Day. So weird. I mean, I interviewed all kinds of people, but for some reason, and so I'm like, it's so strange that everybody who stuck with me was all traveling on this train together, these convoys, even if they weren't in the same convoy, to, yeah, to and to know that you're being on this deportation train. So just if you imagine, mm-hmm. so if you picture where Paris is in France and all the trains heading west, SNCF workers are sabotaging on D-Day to try to like help the allies land. The other trains, deportation trains are still heading east. So like on the one hand, the company is like part of the resistance, the workers, and the other, they're driving them to deportation I mean, they're driving them. They know they didn't know about concentration camps the way we do. Let's just be clear. But they knew they were going nowhere good. Mm-hmm. But they didn't know what Auschwitz meant or, you know, those kinds of things. So how did yeah, so that I think that's one of the more interesting things is I mean, obviously it's a huge company, it's five hundred thousand people. But like how did those simultaneous things happen? Like like is the three thousand yeah. just are they going rogue and Yes. So that's it. The ones who are the ones who are sabotaging the trains or helping people escape are literally going rogue. So much so that the earlier in the war, the heads of the SNCF said that they will report and give to the Germans anybody's name who's like sabotaging the rail. They had internal campaigns like do not sabotage the rail. Do not, you know, share information. Do not share parcels or, or like send messages back and forth. We will turn you in. Now, you ask the train company, they might say, well, they had to say that, blah, blah, blah. But they actually did, you know, turn them in. I mean, the sabotaging the rails is very dangerous, as you know. Railway workers were very attached to their trains, so they didn't love sabotaging their own machines either. So it was it was hero, it was heroism. It was maybe they felt that the war was turning and they felt a little more chutzpah. Yeah, yeah. to sabotage them. Yeah. That's it. And so the other thing is, so it's three thousand people, and it's sort of I don't want to say confined to 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 um that area, but it sounds like like all three thousand were. Oh, oh, thank you for asking. No, to be clear, that three thousand, and there's a I have a book here of all a page on each of those people did really different things. Mm-hmm. Like some up in Lille, France, there were some railway workers that convinced. Oh, I mean, just to try to imagine this, convinced families to hand over their babies and children because they had a sense that people were going to be killed mm. and they housed them all and uh, saved them. So like those railway workers. So there were like different things. And I heard stories from survivors of in, things that probably aren't even in that book. And there's, I'm sure there's more than 3000 that actually, you know, moments were shared information. They help people hide, you know, those kinds of things. Sort of thinking about it more broadly, has there been any successful movement to gain compensation for maybe other human rights violations in other contexts. Obviously, um, the Holocaust is one of the most like popular human yeah. rights violations, but it's it's certainly not alone, um, either in the United States or um, anywhere. So we talked a little bit, I guess you said there yeah. was um, a railway sued for um, its involvement in slavery in the United States. Yeah. So, you know, well, first, the, the other, those who suffered other Holocausts and other 
forms of genocide and oppression sometimes think that it was just handed over to the Holocaust survivors. They didn't know how hard they fought and how long it took, but now we can learn from them. Mm-hmm. And so indigenous in Canada, uh, descendants of American slaves here, the Her- Nama Herrero genocide in Namibia, you've got genocides uh, and Armenians as well all over the world learning from this and learning how to gain um, some compensation. In the U.S., I think something really interesting is happening where we don't have a national apology yet for slavery, uh, but there are little like local reparations programs happening, like outside of Chicago, they were giving housing grants. California, you may have known, is like is looking at its own reparations plan. Different organizations are giving money to focus on what their role was. So it's happening in like sometimes smaller ways. Uh, but there are settlements. There are there are settlements. There are apologies. There are increasing transparency. The the uh, king of the Netherlands just apologized for slavery this past week. So it's it's happening. Um, the Japanese attorneys were compensated in the U.S. for their um, the comfort comfort women. I hate that term in in Korea, but really, really uh, sexual assault victims were given some compensation. Some of the slave labor, yeah. So it's jibs and drabs. Although, like, what the heck do you pay somebody for, like? their parents or their torture that they can never forget or you know i mean it's like the indignities of it it's very difficult to quantify yeah and that's always going to be the the question right it's like what amount of money um can make it right and the the answer is no amount of money can make it right but then how much money should you have anyways because even if you can't make it right you have to do Something. And we have these class action lawsuits, right? I mean, the, the hot coffee at McDonald's is always the mm-hmm. one that we refer to, right? Where they got so much money, much more money than Holocaust survivors or any genocide survivors or so. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Cause like you, you get a net, or I'm thinking of like in a car crash, you know, you get paid for, um, yeah. for not being able to do the things that you used to be able to do. And it goes beyond just like medical bills and things like that. Yeah. And like, like that, they get more and there's they, get more. They, they should get money, you know, if they can't do stuff. But it's almost like because that's a singular instance, you know, like that's one person yeah. we can give the money to versus like, you know, if you gave it to everybody that suffered these. But like you probably still should. And it, I guess it just gets more complicated when there were and more expensive. Yeah, like those right? who are calculating slavery. Right. It's like 17 trillion dollars. And <laughs> it doesn't even include like the suffering and the, you know, so. It is a good question. Also, the courts are better at handling individual cases mm. than these collective mass atrocities. Yeah. So that's also tricky. Just to make it slightly more complicated, has anybody tried to do anything for um, current human rights violations that, that are sort of ongoing? Oh, thank goodness. Yes. I mean, there are there's um, there's tons of cases going on about that, trying to hold companies accountable for their supply chains and environmental disasters and so on. Um, there's some human rights lawyers that are doing great work trying to get more recent things. I mean, having to do with like Agent Orange, you know, from Vietnam or having to do with the comfort women and having to do with Exxon's activities in Indonesia um, and some torture cases there. So there is a lot going on. It's still I know that metaphor I think I used in the book, which still feels like apt, which is like trying to hold back giants with rubber bands. Mm-hmm. You know, corporations are outsizing some of the the biggest are outsizing the countries in which they operate. Like Walmart is bigger than Peru, like just to Mm. kind of (laughs) give us a sense. And Exxon, um, Stephen Cole, who's written about them, says they make their own rules. I mean, so kind of trying to figure out 
where we have leverage um, is really collective effort. So all the listeners, like it matters when you pick different brands or when you write companies and say you care, like it actually really matters. So, so thank you for like, for doing that and standing up to your own companies that you work with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it sounds like, yeah, like we've been talking about, it's really hard to do this through legal means or through, yeah. through laws and things like that. But you know, if their brand gets tarnished enough, sometimes it sounds sometimes, like yeah, they'll do something <laughs> at least. Yeah. Um, okay, so how did you get interested in this broad subject? Yeah, I, I, um, I think I was probably always a sort of humanitarian at heart, but at the time, <laughs> I was working in advertising in Paris. I was first in Manhattan, then in Paris, and before I had been transferred, a friend said to me, "Hey, when you get to France, find out if the train drivers kept their jobs after the war." Mm. He meant those deportation trains. Kind of to your question of like, what was the accountability after the war? Yeah. And I was like, oh, it's a really interesting question. Like, what happened to them? Did they just like go back to work? Did they like grieve? Did they like, I don't know, were they fired? Like, how does that work? And I forgot about it sort of until um, I saw my own name on the Holocaust wall in the Memorial de la Shoah. Her name, Sarah Fetterman, was murdered at 16. Uh, but they didn't know much more about her. She was a Polish ancestry. And when I saw her name, I don't know, it just felt like, oh my God, wait, that would have been me on that train. But now I want to know what happened to those train drivers. Yeah. <laughs> and I sort of had like literally like skin in the game. And I was not related to her biologically, but I felt this connection. And then I started to pursue the question, which led to a master's and then a PhD and then a book. And now my whole new career but literally I was just tugging at this question of like, well, what did the train company do? And I was living in France. It was a perfect time um, to start to explore it. We didn't talk. I mean, we kind of hinted around it, but just out of curiosity that I'm assuming the train drivers did for the most part, keep their, everybody kept their job. Yeah. yeah. They all kept yeah. their job, except for a couple of managers at the company, everyone else kept their job, which in, you know, mass atrocity, what ends up happening is you hold just a couple people accountable and then you let everybody else off the hook. I mean, mm -hmm. we have like, how many trials at the International Criminal Court? How many convictions since it's been functional? Like so few, but you can't hold an entire nation. But we can do more than we do. Like there can, are ways to engage those who participated, you know. All right. So uh, what do you think the legacy of these legal battles and these sort of attempts to um, to make amends is? Mm. Well, it tells other people who have suffered that they ought to give it a try. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, it does it does encourage that. Um I guess I feel heartened that like we're not in a authoritarian regime of people can speak up and try to try to have their pain be heard. And even if it's frustrating and it doesn't lead to the results as quickly as many people. I mean, the the case that just Exxon just settled over Aceh, Indonesia, you know, it's been going on for 20 years. There's only like a couple of them left. Same with the comfort women in Korea. There's only a couple of them left. So sometimes I feel like these you know, these companies drag them out, almost waiting for the people to die. Like it, it gives that impression at any rate. Um, but the legacy is that like, it does matter what you do in your job, you know, and like it can have huge consequences on people for better and for worse. I mean, like even us at our desk, even in our functionary jobs, like we actually have huge impact. And I think that's was my real takeaway is that like, you think it's just the leaders, but when you see what made the Holocaust possible, it was all the yeses along the way. Our environmental challenges, our challenges with inequities of all kinds, um, it's all of these. And we all just kind of want to wake 
but I hope this book helps us all sort of wake up to whatever role we're playing in it and to play the most positive one we can. So. Absolutely. I, I think that's like, like when we think about sort of atrocities, one of the first one that comes up obviously is the Holocaust. It feels like at least in the United States, the ones that we get taught about the most are um, slavery in the United States and, and the Holocaust um, yeah. during World War II. And one of the things that I've, I've always found really sort of interesting in this sort of really dark way is, is that in World War II, the Holocaust process, how it is um, so industrial, right? Like you don't have one person that's perpetuating this whole thing. And like, as you mentioned, it's, it's the train drivers that they're yeah. just, they're just doing their job, right? Like that is sort of the mentality that goes into it. And the person that um, sort of uh, processes the orders of these, yeah. trainers, that they're just doing their job. They're doing that one act and those singular actions lead to this sort of large scale atrocity. That's, it requires millions of people. Right. Of benign, seemingly benign moments like uh, Hannah Arendt, the political philosopher, called it schreibtestaters, which is desk murderers. That like mm -hmm. your little ways, we're just like doing our job. It's just just before this reading an article about how the board members of WorldCom and Enron did like a good job on the board. They were just doing their job. They were dutiful, but they like somehow missed the whole collapse of the industry. <laughs> they were just appeasing and rule followers. I mean, it's the appeasement, I think, and the not allowing dissent in our organizations that's mm -hmm. probably the most dangerous. Yeah. Um, because people don't want to speak up. They don't want to be fired, thrown out, ostracized, which companies do. We've seen it happen. Um, okay. So, so where can people get the book? What's, what's the recommendation? Oh yeah. So last train to Auschwitz, it's on Amazon. Uh, for those who love trains, oh my God, like I had to bury myself to learn so much about how trains work. So there's a ton about the history of how the railroad ran during the war, what it was like for the railway workers, right, as well as the survivors. And so I think it really brings you into that that railway world um, and how important railways are to our society and the functioning. You know, in France, the SNCF is still like a you know lauded um, organization. So. Yeah, like a lot of that and then a lot of voices from survivors and then how those legal battles played out, you know, in California and, and beyond. So it goes all the way from the war to the present. And then it, again, it follows these, has a lot of survivors in it, but it follows four main people. And throughout the book, at the end of each chapter, you follow them and get to find out who made it, who died, um, what's happened to them all sort of since. All right, we'll go ahead and throw that in the description of the podcast. If anyone is, is interested, I definitely recommend checking it out. Um, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'm just, I was waiting for the railway people. I'm like, I want to talk to the people <laughs> who care about trains. Thank you for listening to Roundhouse Crosstalk. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out Last Train to Auschwitz by Sarah Fetterman. A link is in the description below. You can also leave us a rating, like, and subscribe to stay up to date for our next episode. We'll see you next time.